0: now. We're uh, privileged to turn our attention to the Word of God now and to uh, study in this second hour uh, to show ourselves approved. So if you would take your Bibles and find your way to the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, we're in chapter 5 now, a new chapter, and uh, we're looking at the first seven verses there. While you're turning, um, I think it's probably... uh, necessary at this time in our study of the book to kind of run through a little bit of a summary where we've been uh, so that we know where we're going. So far in our study of this evangelistic tract that we're calling Ecclesiastes, we started out with the relentless and endless repetition of sameness that characterizes nature. Do you remember? Uh, That was back in chapter one. It produces nothing lasting nothing lasting at all. It's really fleeting. And then we considered whether lasting satisfaction can actually be had in certain lifestyles, the rational and the irrational, the hedonistic, the hard-working laborer, the rich. The answer, of course, was no. Uh, oh, they produced immediate satisfaction to some degree, but nothing that really matters in the end because none of them could pass the acid test of death. You will die, and you cannot take anything with you. It's also very bleak. It's bleak, this life under the sun, and people who live in it are destined for this cruel end. And until then, they struggle between God's ordained constraints of time, as we discovered from chapter 3. Time to be born, a time to die, a time to kill, a time to heal, and so on. We cannot avoid these constraints or work ourselves around them. We can't even get our bearings in them. As Derek Kidner said, the Old Testament scholar, that they are like tides and currents that float us back and forth and and are too strong for us. And all this bleakness, together with the prospects of death, d- uh, drives home the sobering truth that living under the sun is an unsatisfying and hopeless endeavor. We're born, we live, we die, we're soon forgotten, and that's it. That's it. For the brief time that you occupy space on this earth and breathe its air and experience an array of joys and sorrows, after that, it's over. Life is much like a flash in the pan, and it amounts to absolutely nothing. As Isaac Watts put it in the seventh verse of that very famous hymn of his, Our God, Our Help, in Ages Past, he said, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly, forgotten as a dream, dies at the opening day. Watts based that line On Psalm 90, verses 3 to 6, where Moses says, God turns mortals back into dust. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They are like grass that sprouts anew toward the evening. It wilts and withers away. Wow. Neither Moses nor the sage pulls any punches here. In fact, it's worse Than this for people who are separated from God. Worse? Worse than death? What could be worse than that? I mean, according to the Bible, death is the enemy to the godless, right? Well, according to chapter 3, having to live with tyranny and cruelty is a bitter reality of life that can make even death itself seem not so bad after all. Life under the sun for many people can be so miserable that death is more of a friend than an enemy. I just would rather die, some say, a, a mournful soul who's lost his will to live in the depths of his pain. At least then I would, have, I would, I would not suffer like this anymore. And this is, not the, is this not the greatest tragedy for all of humanity, where life makes death look inviting? As we follow the sage further in the human quest for lasting satisfaction in life that is separated from God, we saw more futility from a covetous life and a fiercely independent life and finally a power-grabbing life. So what's next? Well, surely there must be something out there under the sun that can secure lasting satisfaction for me. Well, how about religion? Now, that's different from anything that the sage has considered up to this point. Yeah, religion. People under the sun actually worshiping God. Huh. Well, it just so happens that the sage considers religion uh, next in our text. It's in chapter 5. It's the first 11 verses. Now, let me clarify here. The sage is not talking about pagan religion He doesn't have that in his sights, although what he has to say here would certainly condemn any notion that the worship of other gods is a good idea. Remember, the sage uses the epitome of topics to prove his point. Do you remember that? He went to the king to represent hedonism and power grabs because you cannot get any more hedonistic or powerful than the king. And he settled on rational epistemology to test human wisdom, and the successful man who managed to save a great inheritance to represent riches. The thinking here is that if the ultimate, the best that life has to offer under the sun in any of these various contexts is utterly futile, well then certainly anything less than the best is unquestionably futile. So when it comes to worship, he cuts right to the chase, and he talks about the only right belief system there is, the true faith. He knew it as Yahwism. We know it as Christianity. This passage exposes hypocrites, apostates, pretenders, who depart from the true faith to worship God in their own way. Um, In your bulletin, I took the liberty of publishing, the the, uh, the outline there. You may or may not have the outline. We're sorry about that. But the thrust of this passage, uh, which we also have there, if you have it in front of you, goes like this. God has authorized the way to worship him, which centers on listening to his word instead of engaging in babble, is motivated by God's supremacy and the, the threat of empty religious ritual, and grounded, In a sincere communion that avoids the religious double-mindedness that God detests and is futile and worthy of his judgment, therefore, true worshipers will fear God. How's that for a summary? Mm -hmm. Try summarizing 11 verses. It's not very easy. I want to unpack unpack that with you as we make our way through uh, these seven verses, uh, seven verses. So, I'd like to say, first of all, that God has authorized a way to worship Him, the way to worship Him, which centers on listening to His Word instead of engaging in babble. Those are the first two verses. Our brief passage has a message that's both powerful and time sensitive, which is why it opens with caution guard yourselves. Now, the New Testament <clears throat> excuse me, also uses warning formulas like this when it wants, to pay care, pay, wants you to pay careful attention to what it says. In Luke chapter 17, for example, where Jesus prefaces his teaching on biblical reconciliation in verses 3 and 4 with, with, this, with a particular warning because he knew his disciples would find it foreign and difficult to practice. So he takes out the big red flags and he starts waving. He says, watch out, be on guard. And in essence, he says, I'm about to tell you how to reconcile with those who grievously offend you and you will think that it is so difficult you won't be able to do it. He was right. Verse 5 records their desperate response. Lord, increase our faith, which today means We don't have enough faith to do that. Well, the sage cautions his readers in the same way. Guard your steps. Watch out. Take care. Warning. So what's he have to say here that he would need to preface this with such a stern warning? How to worship God, that's what. The entire clause of verse 1 reads, guard your steps as you go into the house of God. Now, obviously, the warning is against false worship. That is, worship, worshiping the true God in the wrong way. Beloved, worshiping God can be a dangerous business. It's not something you'll ever hear, by the way, from the church growth movements. You understand that. No, Christianity in America would have a hard time believing that. Dangerous? What do you mean, dangerous? What about John's promise to us that we have no fear of judgment? Well, he was referring to true believers having been saved from judicial judgment, which God's perfect love casts out. But that doesn't spare us from God's loving chastisements and disciplines, which He which can be very severe at times. Well, okay, then what about the Hebrew writer's invitation to receive grace in times of need, so come to the throne of grace confidently? Well, that doesn't prevent God's discipline either, which the writer explains in the next chapter. Paul spoke of the fourth stage of church discipline in 1 Corinthians as delivering an unrepentant member over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, But, someone says, I don't understand. Worship services are fun. They're exciting. A place of joy where we can be ourselves and express ourselves the way way we want to before God. Is that true? Is that really true? Can people feel at ease worshiping the Almighty any way they want? Some in Corinth tried this during the Lord's Supper, and God struck them with illness and some of them with death. Then there is the case with Ananias and Sapphira, whom God struck dead because of the hypocritical worship in the assembly. Now, this is the New Testament, folks, not Mount Sinai, where curious Israelites died if they transgressed the boundary at the foot of the mountain. Didn't Jesus uh, threaten entire churches in the book of Revelation to remove them from their positions of influence and witness if they didn't repent? And where are they now? They're gone. God has always had an acceptable way to be approached in worship. There this is so fundamental, yet it is so foreign to many churchgoers. But, but but this doesn't seem right, some protest. God welcomes anyone into his presence. He accepts people just as they are. Have you heard that before? Of course you have. That's one of the biggest pieces of satanic propaganda that has ever been peddled in the churches in our lifetime. What? Well, it sounds so nice and inviting, yeah, but think that one through. If God accepts us just as we are, then there was no need for Christ to die. It's precisely because God does not accept you just as you are that Christ had to die. Paul says, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us, that we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Beloved, God accepts you not as you are, but as you are in Christ. That's the gospel. The late David Powellson put it this way, God's love is better than unconditional. Those whom God set his love on to save, he had to change before he could accept them. Oh, these trite cliches that just roll off the tongues of churchgoers who have no understanding whatsoever of doctrine and unwittingly propagate satanic lies as if they were gospel truths. God doesn't accept you just as you are, but as you are in Christ. Mm -hmm. And that truth is just as sound as another one. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That's the acceptable way. That's the only way to approach God. It is in Christ. If one hopes to commune with God, he needs to be what Jesus calls born again. And Paul calls us to engage in joyful, sacrificial giving in our worship. Worship is sacrificial. And Jesus told the Samaritan woman that God desires worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And that last example brings us to the specific part of genuine worship that the sage has in mind. That was all just to show how how serious a business worship is. He says, God insists that worshipers listen to his word and proclaim, uh, his word as proclaimed and taught in worship, with the intent of of applying it. So we go to listen to the word of God with the intent of applying it. We read on in verse one approach to listen, approach to listen. The implication, of course, is listen to God as he has spoken to us in his word. His written word is the only place that we can go to discern God's will for us, to hear what he has to say about about how to live life that pleases him. You cannot get that information anywhere else. The trouble with many Christians today is that their foundation is Scripture plus something else. And the something else might be their tradition or upbringing or feelings, human wisdom, the dangerous public conscience of society. Whichever it is, that becomes their interpretive lens by which to understand the little bit of God's word that they know. And sadly, there are so many of them that don't realize just how important sola scriptura is. The word of God alone, and how important it is to life and worship, Jesus' words should be the centerpiece of our worship. Instead, instead it's music, the fellowship, the people themselves, the influential personalities that become the focal point. The Psalter, the only part of God's word that was written and meant to be recited back to God, Paints a very different context. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, Psalm 1. I will praise you in the assembly with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all your laws that come from your mouth. Psalm 119.7. We read in Deuteronomy 31... Verses 10 and 11, Moses commanded the priest to read the book of the law to the people at the very end of seven years at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel would appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose so they will hear it. This is a worship service. In 2 Kings 23, it recounts that Josiah, godly king Josiah, Upon finding the book of the law, assembled people in the house of the Lord and read it to them. Oh, and it wasn't until Asaph went into the worship service of the temple that he learned why he must not envy the evildoer. Psalm 73. Are you getting the impression that the word of God is the rallying point of communal worship? This is why the Apostle Paul calls for the public reading of Scripture and the preaching of Scripture and the worship. This is how we hear from God. This is how God speaks to us. Any one of the, any one of the many crucial truths that we learn from God's Word is, 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 uh, uh, highlights, of course, the one very crucial one, which is the acceptable way to approach him, in communal worship, it's there in the word. Uh, and that's not up for grabs, communal worship, and, in its approach. Mm-hmm. Now, some in the New Testament learned that the hard way. Nadab and Abihu improvised. Mm-hmm. Hophni and Phinehas violated protocol. All four of them priests. All four of them struck dead by God. Now, as clear as this is, the false worshiper still insists... On his approach to worship, an approach that replaces God's word as the focal point with himself, the false worship is all about the worshipper talking when he should be listening, boasting, bragging, engaging in empty ritual. Read on in verse one. Don't offer sac- the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing; that they are doing evil. Now, the sage identifies the false worshiper, the pretender, the apostate, as as a fool because this person does what he wants. And rather than come to the house of God to hear God and learn and grow and commune with him, he he comes to do his own thing, which actually might even look spiritual on the outside. He's not learned the lesson that King Saul learned the hard way, that obedience is better than hypocritical sacrifice. Such people, even today, don't even realize that that their approach is sinful. They honestly believe that there is a way to worship God that is right for them. Well, how postmodern is that? (laughs) Many approaches to God. Just choose one that works for you and don't look back. And at that point, worship becomes a free-for-all. No, God says, he has outlined the approach and that only makes sense if worship is as important and potentially hazard as we have understood it to be. Now, the sage gives us a better idea of the nature of this hypocritical approach. It amounts to what I call babbling. I've mentioned this already. I'm going to explain it to you. I think that the be- that's the best word to define what the sage is getting at. Uh, it refers to babbling, according to Oxford, the action or fact of talking rapidly, continuously, in a foolish, excited, or incomprehensible way. <laughs> Look at verse 2. Do not be quick with your mouth or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. We would say on the ranch, whoa! <laughs> These folks are so quick to speak about trivial matters that they speak impulsively, rashly, glibly, incessantly, with, without forethought. They like to hear the sound of their own voice, and they like others to hear the sound of their voice as well. They're eager to broadcast their spirituality by making vows and commitments to God that they have no intention on keeping whatsoever. It's of little consequence to them that God might hold them accountable to their word because their worship is empty. They go through the motions. They do what they want how they want, thinking all the while that they're pleasing God and impressing others. We have an example of this. It's very interesting. In Ezekiel chapter 14, if you know the book of Ezekiel, you know that Ezekiel excoriates and indicts the religious leaders of of Israel. They were all corrupt. And uh, these false leaders of Israel uh, wanted to come before him to consult with God in prayer and commune with him. God speaks to the prophet, and he says this. This is Ezekiel 14, first three verses. Some uh, some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me, prophet speaking. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set their idols in their hearts and have put in front of their faces the stumbling block of their wrongdoing. Should I let myself be consulted by them at all? obviously the rhetorical question here answer is no god has no intention on communing with any of them much less answering the prayers of those who have no regard for him new testament correlation i think to this is second peter 2 where the apostle addresses false prophets there that that have infiltrated the church it's noteworthy it's noteworthy that he describes among other things the manner of their speaking in the midst of the love feasts at church, sort of a worship service that would have been the, the prototype of the, um, or the development, rather, of the Lord's Supper for a time. I'm picking out uh, of these, uh, the, I'm picking out um, this out of verses 10 to, to 16. Here's what he says, just a sampling. Reckless, self-centered, they speak abusively of an- angelic majesties without trembling verse 10. Use abusive speech where they have no knowledge, verse 12. They speak arrogant words of no value. They entice by fleshly desires, verse 18. And Peter ties this evil activity of babbling in verse 15 with their own approach to worship. He says, abandoned the right way, they have gone astray having followed the way of Balaam. See the connection. Oh, how futile worshiping God is by those under the sun who have no relationship with him. Well, the sage shifts gears now, and he shows us that true worship is motivated by God's supremacy and the hazards of empty ritual. This is in verses 2 and 3. He wants his audience to know that true worship that God delights in is motivated not by one's comfortability in the worship, or whether he is notice, noticed at the worship, or in his efforts to impress God and others with his gesticulations and stained glass voice. The text is specific about godly motivation for worship. We see first that the supremacy of God motivates true worshipers to listen to God and to his word. It's the fact that God is holy. He is high and lifted up that steers them clear of sins of presumption and babbling and empty ritual. True believers, or as the sage called them earlier, those who please God, they acknowledge God's supremacy, that he is superior to them, to everyone, and he has his prescribed way to be worshipped also, and that's superior. God is in his heaven. You are on the earth the sage says, therefore let your words be few. Mm-hmm. And when we come into the presence of God to worship as a body, we need to do so on the one hand with dignity and awe, with reverential respect for who he is, acknowledging his holiness, and on the other, with a, cele- with a celebration of the fact that he has put his love toward us and reconciled us to himself i would submit to you that worship services need to preserve the old testament old testament what old testament israel seemed to have attained worship that was both solemn and celebratory such an assembly invites well cultic shouts of amen and other physical expressions of worship it does but in a dignified way that keeps God at the center of the worship. Worship should always be theocentric and Christocentric. What's that mean? God-centered and Christ-centered. Yes, it's about him, beloved, not about us. That's why it's called a service, right? We serve the Lord by singing his praises, by praying, giving, uh, scripture reading, preaching, and physical expressions of worship with all our heart, soul, and mind. There should always be an emphasis on God's words rather than our words because his words are the only words that he has promised never to return empty. Not yours, not mine. They will have their effect. If you've ever wondered why we here at Pilgrim Put such a heavy emphasis on the exposition of scripture, sing hymns that are theologically sound and based on scripture. this is why we 're a church, beloved we 're a church, not an entertainment center i don 't stand on a platform, a stage, I stand on a platform. Those men who guide the worship with me up here are not performers they 're leaders, and you are not spectators to be entertained but your participants to be involved. You can see even that in this, we, that there are two opposite approaches to worship, one that's God-sanctioned and the other that's empty and dishonoring to God. Well, the sage also says that true worshipers are motivated to listen to the word of God more than talk because, because they know the, the the dangers of drifting into what we might call foolish and meaningless repetition. Look at verse three. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. In typical proverbial fashion, the sage makes a comparison. Just as much effort produces dreams, so words produce foolish talk. In other words, the toil from one's labor is so constant that he cannot escape it even if he's asleep. He dreams of how to do things better and faster and generate a greater profit. In the same way, the more opportunity that a false worshiper has to to talk in the assembly, the more foolish he will sound. And his babbling will utter regrettable things, make rash promises, hypocritical statements, and empty platitudes. Well, we come to uh, verses four to seven. And the sage focuses our attention then on this true worship and the fact that it is grounded in a sincere communion that avoids double mindedness that God detests and is futile and worthy of his judgment. It avoids all of that because it is sincere. It's not hypocritical, it's not pretending. The difference that the sage points out here between true and false worship is that true worship is sincere. It's grounded in a sincere communion with God and it will avoid sinful double-mindedness. Notice verses 4 and 5. When you make a vow to God, don't be late in paying for it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you not vow than vow and not pay. Sage warns anyone who walks into the temple not to be double-minded. If you make a vow, fulfill the terms of the vow on time. Sincerity is obviously key here. Those who are false and they put on airs before the people in the assembly, at best, go through the motions and are careless about how they honor God. They might swear to something in a moment, But later, they have no intention on following through with it. And this would have stood out to the sages' audience because fulfilling vows to God was a huge deal. It was a huge deal. We see it especially in the vow of praise, which is the very last section of the Lament Psalm, vow of praise. The psalmist makes a vow in the midst of his turmoil and distress He makes a vow to God promising that upon deliverance, and in his mind there's no question that there will be deliverance, the very first thing he will do is go to the temple and tell everybody what God has done. He will boast of God's mercy and grace. That was paramount. But such a desire to honor God this way in the assembly can come only by a sincere and redeemed heart. The pretender with will address God with formulaic words, with his mind uh, focused on something else. There's a good example of this in James 1, where James accuses some in his congregation of this kind of hypocritical praying, and he called it double-mindedness. He said, ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the winds. For that person ought, to, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. What is a double minded man? He's the person that God said, He praises me with his lips, but his heart is far from me. Oh, yes. Lip service. He's the guy who worships with the body on autopilot. He sings the hymns, but he doesn't think about the words he's singing. He doesn't make the hymn writer, uh, he doesn't make the hymnwriter's words his own. He knows them all too well and mechanically mouths the words while his mind is on the football game that's coming later. He stands up and sits down on cue. He joins in the responsive reading and then moments later forgets that he actually recited it and wonders when, when they're going to recite it. Why did we forget that? He's too busy thinking about other things. The sage says to this guy, don't bother going through the motions. God hates empty ritual. The problem is pretenders are so programmed to go through the motions because they see these motions as redeeming in and of themselves. Much in the same way that Catholics see the sign of the cross or doing penance as being redeeming in and of themselves. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. But but what Catholicism does is not even prescribed in the New Testament. Well, before you go patting yourself on the back because you're not Catholic, don't think for a moment that the true church has no pretenders. This is what the sage has been talking about apostates of orthodox truth. There are plenty of people in Protestant churches who have a works mentality and legalistically keep perfect attendance at worship, attend all functions, pray at every single meal, dutifully have daily devotions, and make sure that they give the gospel to someone at least once a week, mistakenly thinking that by these hoops, they become holier. Yes. They don't realize that true believers have Christ's holiness imputed to them. You've got to make yourself holier, which is why we are to display Christ's holiness, and not by legalistic practices either. False worship, and we can include religion, is truly something that is futile because it's empty, Paul has a great way of explaining this in 2 Timothy 3.5. He says, speaking of false teachers in the church, they have a form of godliness. Although they deny its power, avoid these people. Paul's pretty frank, too. Why is Paul so concerned about directing the church away from these guys? Well, for the same reason that the sage is interested in directing us away from ungodly approaches to worship. According to verses 6 and 7, hypocritical, double minded, and empty forms of godliness are not only futile, but they're worthy of God's judgment. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, he says, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God, which would have been the priest, that this was a mistake. Why should God be angry on, your account, uh, on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is futility. The sage continues in the context of a worship service where the false worshiper sins in his speech. How does he do this? Well, he excuses himself for any spiritual responsibilities of a true believer by claiming ignorance. Now, let me explain that. The law... Leviticus the Levitical code did allow for Israelites to get out from under impulsive statements that they that they made but didn't really mean in later regret. You can read about them in numbers thirty. Um, the sage certainly has this in mind, and he points to its abuses here with the false worshiper false worshiper. Knows of this and uses it as an excuse to re- renege on his responsibilities. Oh, he says to the priest, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. We call this playing the system. And the sage wants, to, wants us, uh, warns us rather, not to create this context since God detests double mindedness and will reject the offering. In, this, in his case, forgiveness is not forthcoming. Rather, God sees the hard and the empty ritual motivated by double-mindedness and will judge the individual. Did I mention that worship is, or well, worshiping the true God is, is dangerous business? It is for those who don't fear God and don't, don't do what he says. Well, in case you've missed it, we've said very simply that God hates when anyone worships him falsely. False worship is all about the worshiper, not about God. It's not God-centered. It's not Christ-centered. It's man-centered. The fancy word for that one is anthropocentric. Where testimonies become bragamonies, where people come dressed to call attention to themselves and away from the glory of God, where praise is more about me than what God has done in my life. Where people babble on, resorting to platitudes that are empty and emoting in a syrupy, fluffy manner. There is no rising up to meet God in His holiness. Rather, God is brought down to our level. He's one of us, you see, He's our buddy. It's rather difficult, someone once said, to be buddies with an all-consuming fire. We have lost the sense of God's holiness in worship, beloved, in America. And people casually amble into worship with the greatest of ease, without preparation, without mindfulness, with no eye on the kingdom or any firm resolve to worship here the way they will there someday. There's not much public reading of Scripture. The expository preaching has been replaced with sermonettes. The whole place is explained as a safe zone. No judging, no accountability, no confrontation, no examination. Just come and go as you are, as you like. And don't forget, by the way, to to leave your generous gift on the way up. What the sage calls attention to then is how then and now, I should say, is empty faith expressed in empty ritual for self-gratification and assurance for the worshiper that he can keep and stay in God's good graces by what he does. This is This is the best that one can muster under the sun who is separated from God. This is religion under the sun. And the only thing it does is leave a stench in the nostril of God and incur his wrath. It's bad enough when true believers ignore God's word for, for worship and life and godliness, but it's far worse when false believers do it and think that they are genuine because of it. At least believers can repent, but false worshipers? we have any hope for them? Well, yes. We need to rehearse with them the Bible's plea to them to turn from their futile attempts to please the holy God with man-made rituals and thrust themselves on the person and work of God alone. Jesus declared in John 424, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The grammar of that little phrase, spirit and truth, it shows an inextricable connection between spirit and truth. When God poured out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, establishing a new ministry of the Holy Spirit who would now indwell believers permanently, he demonstrated that true worship of God cannot take place without the supernatural indwelling of his Spirit. True worship is truly spiritual. In fact, biblical Christianity is the only faith that is spiritual. Regardless of what people say today about being spiritual, because because of the Holy Spirit's work of regenerating the depraved soul of the individual. Mm -hmm. We have union with Christ by means of the Holy Spirit regenerated work in us. But that's not all. True worship is, is only possible by conformity to God's truth. The very truth of God that was his word that became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ. To say it simply, God seeks worshipers who have been born again by the regenerating work of the Spirit and upon the acceptance and appropriation of Jesus, the Word made flesh, who has also established for us the proper way to worship God. D.A. Carson uh, put it this way, or actually he calls worship, um, quote, essentially God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit, and in personal knowledge of and conformity to God's word made flesh, the one who is God's truth, End quote. The last words of the sage in verse 7 call out to the false believer, the one who claims to worship God in his own way, which God rejects and bids him fear God, fear God. And Jesus would recast those words in a way that captures their essence, and it's this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And God, our Father, we rejoice for the fact that you are so good to us. You have given us your word and the Holy Spirit to assist us this day as we've we've studied this small but profound passage in Ecclesiastes. We pray we would take it to heart, and we pray, Lord, that we will, we will use it not only for our own benefit in examining our own faith and our own worship, but, but especially as we encounter those who are false, uh, who worship God their own way. We pray that we will be ready with a word from this word, that you might use to to break in with the words of eternal life, to break into their hearts and to have your way with them there. We pray most earnestly, O God, that you would hear us now in our request for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. Amen. amen.